What's up, everyone? My name is Matt James, and welcome to Generation Bitcoin. Today, I'm here with John Edmonds, an economist, professor, and author of several books. Thanks for coming on the show today, John. How are you doing? Well, just fine, thanks. And uh, specializing in finance and uh, lately <laughs> crypto, can't, can't keep my head out of it these days. It's so fascinating. Awesome. Yeah, it's very exciting stuff for sure. So just to go in a little bit of backstory about you, uh, you have quite the resume as a student, professor, economist, and author. Uh, you have degrees from Harvard Business School, Boston University, Northeastern University, Harvard College, and you've served on the uh, faculties of many universities, and you've taught extensively overseas. Uh, you've authored over 350 articles and several books. So can you elaborate a little bit more uh, on your backstory and why you were drawn to economics and what you do now? Well, I spent a lot of my childhood in Japan, and uh, I saw that the Japanese had mastered the whole matter of how to really uh, make, a, make an economy rich or economically successful, and I thought I could uh, help countries that were not doing so well. And I, I zeroed in on Latin America because only had to learn one language, and I kind of already knew it. Um, and when I got there, I found that uh, I was right. They didn't have any good reason to be as poor as they are, but they had plenty of reasons, which seemed good enough to them, but do not did not then and still do not seem good enough to me. And so I just kept going back and back. And finally, I went to Spain for a couple of years to see where all their uh, ideas came from, a lot of their institutions and legal system, and uh, just kept... Uh, Finding more and more reasons to dig deeper because uh, what really what really uh, they don't do well is the financial systems. The national financial systems of most of those countries are really from about eighteen thirty or eighteen sixty. I see. Okay. Well, what what is your take? I want to get get into economics a little bit since you know so much about that, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, two thousand eight financial crisis. I know you wrote a lot about that as well. So what, what are some of the factors you think that caused that and, and what we can learn from that uh, moving on? Well, it was over leverage and poor design of, of instruments that people were buying and packaging stuff, uh, thinking that it wouldn't do any harm to have a couple of uh, bad apples in, uh, in, in, in there. But uh, as we know from New England, uh, one bad apple can spoil the whole barrel. It actually took more than one in this case, but... Uh, a lot of mortgages that were issued that really shouldn't have been issued to people that pretty clearly weren't going to be able to pay. And uh, sooner or later, some of them didn't pay. And then we got a liquidation in real estate, which was very messy because of the vicissitudes of the U.S. legal system and the delays and liquidation and uh, foreclosure and so on. Um, and what I would like to bring to people's attention about the crisis of 2008 is the U.S. really was the epicenter of it and also the primary cause. But uh, the U.S. actually suffered from it the least of most of the countries. Um, it's like, Im imagine if you live next door to a place and, uh, and they had this really great party that went on all night and it sounded like everybody was having a wonderful time. And when, uh, when you woke up in the morning, you looked out, looked out your window and you saw them walking out uh, without suffering very much from hangover, and you just had a terrible hangover, but you weren't even at the party, and you didn't drink any of the any of the liquor that they were serving. That's what happened to the wind. And nobody ever apologized for it, and very few people in the U.S. were ever found guilty of, of any crimes, although they rather obviously committed them. Hmm. That's, a, that's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, 
I like that analogy you use. So do you, do you see, uh, similar things happening nowadays with policymakers and what central banks are, are doing with, with uh, quantitative easing and whatnot? No, not really, no, because uh, the, the countries that are able to issue large amounts of bonds are really uh, creating means of payment that people actually want. That is to say, these are, these are claims on the Treasury of the U.S. or the European um, Central Bank or the Japanese um, Treasury or uh, some uh, very serious organization like that, like the People's Bank of China. So what people are buying is they're buying bonds that are going to have a claim on future cash flows and the the soundness of those is not really is not really uh, in discussion. Um, if you go back to 2006, 2007, 2008, a lot of the bonds that were issued were uh, packaged um, mortgages or packaged uh, junior bonds called junk bonds issued by companies that possibly wouldn't have been able to pay it back. So uh, a lot of the paper that people were trading in 07, 08 was pretty shaky stuff, whereas what, what people are buying now is the people are buying uh, pretty good stuff, but paying a lot for it because uh, there's just so much money uh, floating around and it's, it's being injected intentionally and they can withdraw it uh, when when necessary, if, if it would become necessary. I'm thinking it wouldn't become necessary because we're not really going to get a huge burst of inflation out of this because what what's happened is the U.S. Uh, dollar has become the, the money of the, of the entire world. The value of a currency is uh, in large part determined by the span of the economic zone over which it commands purchasing power. And currency like uh, the Nicaraguan Cordoba, uh, nobody wants it even in Nicaragua. I mean, a retailer will take it only because they sort of have to. But uh, if you walk in with a $20 bill, uh, they'll, they'll break out in smiles and give you a, a better deals. Um, and so the, the idea that we would have inflation in the dollar zone is based on the, I think, now outdated uh, concept that we we have to measure the U.S. money supply against the U.S. economy. No, we don't. We measure the U.S. money supply against the world economy. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. The uh, world has become dollarized to a, to a certain extent, for sure. Well, so, also euroized and uh, yenized, and so, but any serious currency, any currency that is prudently issued by serious governments that uh, understand how to issue a fractional reserve currency, that's really difficult. The famous entrepreneur Mark Cuban tried it in the world of crypto and found it's not that easy. Um, and he's a pretty smart guy, but he, uh, I guess, uh, didn't, didn't seem to do it too well. Uh, this was a couple of months ago. Um, Something about a 99.999% collapse in the price of the token that he was involved in creating. Yep. Yeah, he, I heard about that as well. He got involved in some uh, small token that, that went to, uh, I think it got hacked. Oh, yeah, it was small. Right. And then, it went, then it became huge and then it became really small. But uh, you're right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to uh, bring up your books here a little bit. So one of the books titled uh, Brave New Wealthy World that you uh, authored uh, talked about a symbiotic relationship with the rich and the poor countries uh, that offers benefits for both. And I really thought that idea was really uh, interesting to think about. And I know there's a lot of people who look at other countries and see, you know, the working conditions and whatnot in these other countries and they say you know this is this is our fault this is capitalism's fault but 
What, what do you think about that? And do you think that uh, you can elaborate a little bit more about how exactly the rich and the poor countries uh, can can work together? Well, there, there can be a more symbiotic relationship than what there has been up until now. Uh, the main argument in Brave New is that people wouldn't prefer to save in their own country, and consequently, they wouldn't use their own financial system. Instead, they would do what I saw over and over again in Latin America. If they had any local currency left at the end of the month, they would run to the money changer and change it into U.S. dollars and then uh, send it up to Miami, uh, and their aunt would uh, put it into a, an account there. I, I know that because I was the I was the uh, errand boy. I was the guy who carried that stuff quite frequently. I never took much. Uh, I never exceeded the $10,000 limit or anything, but I would do it for friends. Uh, and I would say to them, well, how come uh, you don't put it in your in your own financial institution? They said, well, if you want to do that, go ahead, do it. Uh, but we're not doing it. In, the, uh, in general, they found very low confidence in their own institutions. So uh, what you find is they really couldn't collect very much tax. They One reason was that the people who would have paid the tax didn't like the way the government was spending it. And so you ended up with a you ended up with an, an economy that wasn't really innovating. It wasn't really modernizing the mix of uh, particularly services that they were producing. I always think, think in terms of goods. Let's let's figure out how to produce more goods. Well, uh, let's let's grow more coffee. Let's uh, gr- uh, grow grow more sugar. Let's dig more iron ore out of the ground. That, that's really not the not not what the Japanese did. Certainly, and not what countries that have become successful. Another one that comes to mind is Singapore. They didn't do that. Instead, they moved up uh, into more sophisticated service type of businesses. And the country of Chile uh, did manage to modernize their financial system. And we're doing rather well uh, until about 08. And they were they were really devastated by the crisis of, of 08. And they, they reverted back to saying that Chile is nothing but a big co- copper mine. No, it isn't. It's a very uh, sophisticated country with uh, much more mixed uh, composition of, of exports of goods and services and also a very strong local market. So one of the, one of the problems that I, that I encountered is that the people thought that their own local economy was not, not really very big and not a very serious place. So it's like a, like a song that they, that they taught to, uh, kids in elementary school. We're a small country with a small market and everybody's poor here. And so we have to produce sophisticated manufactured goods and export them in competition with Japan and Germany. And I said, well, what about China? China uh, uh, has totally dominated that, that whole that whole space. Um, so wouldn't, why don't you do something else? And they would really look at me like I was coming from another galaxy. But um, we'd be sitting, we'd be sitting in an uptown coffee shop as they were telling me this. And I'd say, well, all these people around here, these are all, these are all copper miners. Right? Well, how come they don't have a helmet and a, and a and a, and a little light on the on the helmet, and they'd laugh and say, "No, these are white collar workers." I said, "Well, I thought by your statement you don't have any of those." And so they actually couldn't see they couldn't see what they already had because they were so sure that they didn't have it. And partly it was a perception that that was, uh, I would say, a, an artifact of colonialism, not not specifically an artifact of capitalism. Uh, ca- capitalism. What happened there was they didn't have any really valid mechanism for distributing income or wealth. So what the argument in Brave New is that uh, financial innovation and financial modernization puts more money on the table, but it does not it does not distribute it. That that second part, distributing it in a more equitable and productive fashion, is the job of the political system, and they just uh, could not do that. And um, I felt bad about that because later I was criticized for just uh, urging urging a, a part of the story upon them 
without without telling them exactly how to distribute it. Well, I I, I can't do that because I'm not I'm not local in some of those cases in some of those places. They would have to they'd have to vote. They'd have to make sure the votes were counted. They'd have to make sure that the political system was balanced and representative. And uh, that's hard enough to do even here. In fact, I would say pretty definitely we don't have it here. So uh, pretty clearly they wouldn't have it in a place like, well, I don't know, just to mention Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua. Uh, they, they do have it in Costa Rica. And they sort of have it in Panama. And they have it somewhat in Colombia. And I've seen it from flashes of it in Peru. Um, and Chile, uh, yes, uh, and, 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 and then not in some of the other countries, even though they, they appear to be more sophisticated in some other regards. So uh, it's taking, uh, taking a while to get to where they need to be. Hmm. I see. I also wanted to move on and mention your other book called uh, Rogue Money and the Underground Economy. So this is a book a little uh, about uh, cryptocurrencies, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about that. What inspired you to write that book and, and what looks like a short synopsis of it? Well, I was talking with, uh, I was talking with the editor and, uh, and she said that they, uh, they wanted to put this thing out, uh, and they, they wanted somebody to be uh, in charge of the whole project. So I immediately jumped on it because I was so interested in it. And also it seemed a mechanism which could help, um, Many, many parts of the uh, income distribution, wealth distribution to uh, have a chance of get some, getting some financial services. Um, and <clears throat> I really do believe that uh, cryptocurrency or cyber currency, maybe a less polemic name, just calling it cyber currency, um, can have a role in improving the, the living standards of the, of the bottom 90% or the bottom 50% of the, of the world's population. A whole bunch of the people, the term that we customarily use is unbanked. There's a lot of people in places um, that you can think of in any, any emerging country, uh, India, uh, Brazil, um, uh, any, pla- any, place, uh, any, any place like Indonesia. A lot of people have never, have never gone inside a bank and don't have a bank account. But they could have, they could have, uh, they could have an account that runs on a cell phone the way they, the way they do in parts of Africa. In parts of Africa, um, particularly over by Kenya, Tanzania, a lot of people never even go into a bank. They just they just do uh, bits and bytes on their cell phone. They standing next to each other or at a distance of a thousand kilometers. They they move they move money from from one account to the other, and uh, in that fashion, they bypass their their banks, which are horrendously uh, inefficient and. And, and just really, really stuck in a previous um, a couple of centuries ago. I mean, you go in there and you think you're in a Dickens, Dickens novel. Yeah. So do you think uh, more countries are going to get on board with this? Uh, recently, El Salvador made it uh, legal tender. And since there's so many people, like you were saying, that are unbanked throughout the world, you think this is going to spread like wildfire through these different places and all these people are going to be empowered by uh, having having Bitcoin and a way to transact? Well, it wouldn't be Bitcoin specifically. It would be maybe other tokens, uh, but it, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be legal in that country, because um, if you go to a decentralized platform, you can create an account uh, without without disclosing very much about yourself, um, and the platform would be domiciled in a flag of convenience type of country, maybe like uh, the Marshall Islands or Malta, or uh, for a while Estonia was doing this, and there's a few other countries that have no 
no big domestic financial services organizations that would feel threatened or uh, that would feel like this is competing with them. And so what you would get is you could get a, you could get an account at, an, at a financial institution that exists primarily in virtual reality. It would have only one pon- point of contact with the planet Earth, and that would be, let's say, the Marshall Islands, where if you had a Marshall Islands account, you could get uh, dollars, euros, and you could send wire transfers and yen, um, Singapore currency, Australian currency, etc. Um, and that would mean that, that you wouldn't need to have a local financial um, relationship. So you wouldn't have you wouldn't have your family's uh, traditional bank, or you wouldn't have the bank that you were taken to when you were eighteen. Living in Europe, I found that it was customary for people when they turned 18 to be taken to the bank that their family had always done business with. And the, the, the branch officer would say, you're going to get all your financial services through this office for your entire life. So you come in, you get a savings account, checking account, credit card, and then when you want a mortgage, you come here. And when you, when you, when you want a retirement account, you come here. And when you, when you die, we'll pay for your funeral. No, that's not really, uh, that's not, uh, that's not the way it should work because what happens if you, what happens if your uncle didn't have a bank account? Then, then you're just really, uh, uh, who, who takes you there? I mean, I, I, I took several, several people that I worked with who were low status guys, took them to a bank, um, and I would walk in with them. And of course, being who I am, I could just get right in there and get into the loan officer's office and stand there with my, with my buddy. And say, I'm John, and this is Manuel, and Manuel can talk also. And Manuel would then tell what he wanted, uh, wanted a loan for, and they'd give him the loan. They'd give him the loan because if they hadn't done that, they'd be ashamed to deny him the loan standing in front of me. But if Manuel went in there alone, somebody would look at him and say, well, what are you doing here? The guy who cleans the bathroom was already here and just left. So Manuel was a, was a very highly qualified agricultural uh, expert, and he uh, he grew some crops on his uh, family farm, which was not very big, but he got uh, really some good results from that and would not have been able to afford to do it without some financing. Otherwise, he'd have just been planted corn and beans like everybody else that doesn't have any money. It's really a drag when you see good agricultural land and you see a guy out there poking poking holes in it with a stick and sticking a grain of corn in, uh, and you see him growing four or five corn plants right next to each other in a little mound. And what they do is they, they select one after a while and pull out the others. Well, that's uh, terribly wasteful, and, and it's 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 ecologically stable because they've been doing that for 2,000 years. But if you would study fallowing and crop rotation and so on, which has been known in Europe since, I don't know, 1750 or 1800, you could uh, produce a whole bunch more output without abusing the land, without, without depleting the soil. You could do that. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how you think this will play out exactly with um, helping those that are unbanked be able to send funds? Do you, th- you think that it's going to be done through a central bank digital currency or um, do you think it will be on the Bitcoin rails or how do you see that playing out? You think you mentioned there were an option for different currencies being able to send well, different ones. There, there's a there's a bunch there's a bunch of competitors of Bitcoin and Ethereum, which have emerged recently. And the reason they have emerged is that they have a better design for how to do how to confirm transactions, and they can handle much more transaction speed, uh, and the cost of transactions is much lower. In the past week, I've done a couple of transactions involving Ethereum. And even a simple 
transaction was 20 bucks and I did two of them. And then, uh, I also did one in, in, uh, in a chain called Cosmos and the uh, same type of thing, just a very simple transaction. And it was one tenth of a penny and it actually confirmed within about, I don't know, about six or seven seconds. Um, and so th- those are, those are superior. And there's a lot of, a lot of platforms that are, that are using that instead of the original Bitcoin or Ethereum platforms. Um, but I would say the central banks, the central banks are trying to get into this. And I, I, it's obvious that they would try to do it, but I think that's really not what's, what's actually going to make, make the big difference. The big difference is, um, if you're, uh, let's say, let's say you're a person in the, in a, in a very disadvantaged rural area in some place like Laos and you find that down the street, there's a used tractor that you could get for some amount of money that is way beyond your reach. But you find out that there's something called crowdfunding and crowdfunding can, can be in your own local currency, but more likely it would be in some, uh, cyber currency. Um, and so you could, you could get a loan in, in cyber currency and you could then sell the cyber currency in some local coffee shop for local currency and get the tractor that way. And then you could work the tractor in your, in your area and get, get revenue and in your local currency and then use the revenue after a month or after a month and then after two months and so on to buy the, to buy the cyber currency that you need to make monthly payments on the loan. And after you make a couple of monthly payments, you could then apply for another loan in that same fashion and get money to buy a bulldozer. And you, know, you could then become the local equipment dealer. And if somebody wanted to have their field plowed, you could do it. Um, and they could, uh, they could, they could then assume that you would be able to do it and they could then plant a more higher valued crop that would require some of that equipment, which they could never get. Otherwise, they'd, they'd have to revert to just these subsistence crops, you know, like the root crops. You know. If you see somebody growing sweet potatoes, it's not because they like sweet potatoes, it's because they just can't grow anything else with the land that they have and the inputs that they have and the available working capital. Agriculture, although the cycle may be pretty short, you plant, you plant sweet potatoes and four or five months later, you, you can be eating sweet potatoes, but you had to, you had to pay something along the way, uh, and you had to have enough money to, to buy food during that time. And if you, if you, if you can't do that, then the, the, the financial system could be considered to have failed completely. But, uh, but if it would, if, if you could get some financing, you could plant something that might take a little bit more input, might take some purchased inputs along the way and some, some tractor to go on and, and plow out the weeds. And then you get a much more valuable crop out of it. And that, that same pattern would apply in all sorts of uh, other activities like transport. You know, a lot of, a lot of people could could make very good use of a truck if they could get one, but they can't. So what do they do? They 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 saddle up uh, they saddle up a donkey or they saddle up a uh, oxen and they pull a they pull a cart. And if you're seeing if you're seeing too many ox carts around and not enough trucks, it's because there's not enough financing. Oxen oxen are quite quaint and very bucolic, and tourists come and take pictures of them, but it's not really the best way to move goods. Yeah, that's uh, definitely an interesting use case uh, to do crowdfunding for sure. Uh, just to um, address what you were talking about earlier with Bitcoin, um, the way I see it, it's kind of uh, built to be the base layer of uh, the financial system. So it keeps the block size small, which causes there to be these fees. However, uh, it's 
built to be optimized for decentralization and security, right? To be yeah, the most get, decentralized. They, they, I, I yeah. say they because nobody really knows who uh, who wrote that original paper, which, by the way, is absolutely brilliant, yeah. particularly the cryptography part of it. Uh, but the, the monetary model is straight from the Austrian school of 1905. That's why they call it paper gold, because the Austrian economists were very big on the subject of gold. And gold is the base of the of the monetary system. They called it le numeraire, which means the common denominator in French. And uh, it, it was, in their, in their time, uh, uh, Bit, Bitcoin is successful in that role up to a point it's it's now considered uh it's a it's an asset that you buy and just you buy it and hold it uh, people have told me i'm talking now several years ago well you can't buy a cup of coffee with it well have to be an awfully big cup but but you could buy a cup of coffee with bitcoin if you go back to the early days i have a friend who actually did it he, he was well, now you can yeah coffee. yeah but 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 it, it's uh it's not the way to do it because it takes it takes at least 60 minutes to get enough confirmations of your transaction so that you can really uh, get up and leave the coffee shop uh, with, a, with the owner of the coffee shop being entirely convinced that you paid. So when they designed that, they, they really didn't know that it was going to become so big. And so I'm, I'm giving them a pass on the whole method of confirming transactions, but the rest of it is, the rest of it is a very good design. And it's, it's set up so that you absolutely cannot have an increase in the total number of Bitcoins that can exist. And some of the right. some of the other uh, tokens that and coins that have been created, virtual coins, you know, cyber currency coins that have been created, the amount can be increased, and that means that uh, some founding genius um, might might decide, uh, oh, I need a Maserati this week, so I think I'll just sell some of these things. Well, that uh, that ends quite badly. Um, you need you need some kind of checks and balances control over the money supply. Control of the money supply is. Uh, a, a difficult idea to really put into effect because it, it's just so tempting to, well, we can just put a few more of these into circulation. It won't matter. Put a few more into circulation. It won't matter. It will finally, sooner or later, you hit the point where people don't want any more of it. We have not reached that point with a dollar. And I don't think that we will for quite a long time, but uh, yeah. getting back to the subject of, of why a central bank might issue a, Cyber currency. Well, I mean, of course you would because you could get some benefit from it and you might be seen as moving with the times and being a little bit more modern and you might have a better chance of catching any bad guys that are operating in your country, but they're not really operating in your country. They're operating in, in, uh, in cyberspace, which is not, not, not specific to one country. It's stateless. It, it operates in its own level and very hard, very hard to control or regulate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, recently with El Salvador uh, making it legal tender. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but actually uh, big corporations like McDonald's and uh, Starbucks uh, actually uh, take Bitcoin as payment and advertise that they take Bitcoin. And it's uh, over the Lightning Network, which is a second layer. You know, Bitcoin is the, fi the final settlement is the base layer and the Lightning Network is built on top, which allows for instant and nearly fee-free transactions. Uh, yeah, have you uh, looked into that at all? I'm in favor of that because light, lightning and, and similar uh, have been around for quite a while because very quickly it became clear that uh, getting getting uh, Bitcoin into circulation as a, as a currency that people would use on a day-to-day -day basis really wasn't going to happen. Um, but, but lightning, as you say, you can, you, can, you can get a confirmation in lightning uh, 
as at lightning speed, and then uh, later on, it's 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 reconciled with the the main Bitcoin chain. And there's several um, there's several other methods of doing the same thing. Generally, they're called side chains. So you create a side chain which comes into contact with a main chain only when when uh, when you want to re- reconcile it. So let's say you and I are trading on a side chain. And uh, you, you've gotten some some tokens, and you want to convert those into Bitcoin, and so you then take take uh, you have to go out to the to the main chain and go through that whole procedure and convert your your tokens that are not Bitcoin, convert them into Bitcoin, and then from there you could um, put them in your Bitcoin wallet, or you could convert them into dollars or whatever. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of a uh, lot of innovation uh, seeking ways of Making transactions more effortless and not so not so brutally expensive in terms of the electricity consumed. The electricity consumed is maybe the, the number one thing that I would change about Bitcoin if I could. It's the it's the it's the method of determining whether or not some um, group of uh, so-called miners would be allowed to record the next block, or whether somebody else should be allowed to record the next block. It's a it's a method of making sure that that nobody's really messing around and putting in. A bunch of fraudulent blocks and so on. It does work for that, but there's other ways of doing that same that same thing and producing that same outcome that are just much much cheaper and much more elegant. And those have been those have been introduced recently. In the case of Ethereum, it's it's called proof of stake, and they've tried to do it and they've actually done it, but it's still not it still has not brought down the cost of transacting in, in Ethereum. It was supposed to bring it down like ninety percent. It hasn't done that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to follow the space and see where it's headed. You know, there there are some chains that do use proof of stake. Uh, it is a little controversial. Um, it's a little unsure about how that will end out with uh, centralization issues with whoever, you know, owns the a certain amount is able to influence the system to more than others, you know. So it's, it's I'm not yeah. too sure how that will play out, but yeah. Well, in, in, in any system of validating transactions, it's vulnerable to what they call the 51% uh, catastrophe, which is if, if I have 51% of the votes as to saying that my transactions are valid and yours are not, mine, mine get added to the chain, even though mine include fraudulent transactions, and then you're just, you're just shafted. Um, so in the case of Bitcoin, when there have been, there have been groups of miners who from time to time have had much more than 51% of the power to confirm transactions, uh, they have they have actually sworn in in public that they wouldn't use this. Well, no, no. I mean, you you should design a system of confirming transactions where nobody has to promise not to use not to abuse power that they, that they that they acquire. They shouldn't be able to acquire it. They should not be in a, in a better designed method of confirming transactions. They wouldn't need to put this pledge out that we have we have this method by which we can steal enormous amounts of money, but we promise we won't do it. Well, I don't like that. Um, yeah, that doesn't sound good to me either. Yeah. I think uh, that there are mining pools that do uh, uh, make up a big portion. However, the pools are made up of lots of individuals throughout the world. I haven't uh, heard of that, but I'll have to look more into that. Uh, you, you were saying that there, there has been times when they had to, had to promise something like that. Yeah, I think, I think they put some of that in rogue money. Rogue Money, I love that title because the publisher had, had already thought of the title. And when they suggested it, I said, that's terrific because it's, it's, it, it's reputation is it's, it's sort of, uh, outside the bounds of, of conventional legal, uh, 
activity and so on, used for money laundering and um, paying off uh, uh, illegal activity and saying, yes, yes, but uh, it's the same same argument that I always heard in Panama. Panama has a very sophisticated and very large financial district, which is maybe the dominant part of their economy. It, it's hard to see in their statistics because a lot of it is not picked up in their statistics. But you go, you walk around in that district and you say, well, what are they doing there? Ah, they're, they're financing financing tax evasion and money laundering and so on. I say, no, what are, these are just ordinary, most of them are just ordinary commercial transactions like paying for a shipment of goods that came in from China or paying for uh, just ordinary working balances that a multinational would have. Um, and and yet uh, I can't prove my, my point uh, any more than uh, the other person can prove theirs because the whole thing is done in, in a way where it's uh, secrecy. Um, and the secrecy from time to time is is broken open, but uh, they they know they know they know why the people are using them, and they they prefer to um, keep as little of it uh, disclosable as possible. What what happens though is when you're in Panama, it's and you're outside of that financial district, people have a distorted idea of what they do for a living there. That the um, it's like saying the main the main the main business of main business of Wall Street is delicatessens. No, it's not. <laughs> But but if you didn't see anything happening in those office buildings, you just see all these hungry people going out of the office building and eating at the delicatessen, you might think that the delicatessen is really the whole ballgame, and it isn't. Um, mm. But but the the role of the role of cyber currency, uh, we haven't really seen the, the the full dimension of it. But what I, what really drew me to it is uh, imagining somebody in a in a rural area in the in in an emerging country. Uh, somebody with energy and some uh, ideas and seeing opportunities and so on. And it would really be nice if they could do something really, really simple like get a sewing machine. I had a housemaid when I lived in the Dominican Republic who was a very smart person, very uh, very adept at a lot of things. She had only been able to finish the fifth grade because that was the that was as high as the school went in the neighborhood that she was living. Um, and she wanted to take some classes to learn how to uh, design clothing, and so uh, my wife and I paid for her classes, which was really a very small amount of money, a very short uh, course, and after that she could make clothes, and we helped her get a sewing machine. We didn't have to help her get the second sewing machine. She got the second one on, on her own. So all she needed was to get her get her her foot on the first step of the ladder, and she could climb the rest of it all by herself, but she could not get her foot on the first step of the ladder. And so the role that I would that I would hope that that cyber currency would would play would be helping a lot of people like like her, and if you if you if you if you would like one more example, there was a bid lending platform that I actually I actually joined and I actually made made some loans there, um, and there was a I, I missed this one I, I I didn't I didn't find out about it until too late. There was a there was a guy in in a small city in Brazil, so, so small that I didn't even know where it was, who had developed a method for arbitraging bets on soccer games. And he had written a computer program that would tell him uh, when the when the bets were inconsistent with each other. And what he was looking for was like 700 U.S. dollars. And he got this loan, and the loan was to be repaid in 12 monthly installments, and he paid a monthly installment, then he paid the second installment, and then he paid all the rest of the money. He paid, he paid the last 10 all at once. So the investors, instead of making like 35% a year, which was what they would have made 
in the original terms, they made over 100% on their money. And then the guy came back and he borrowed $900. And he did, did, did the same thing, made a couple of payments and then paid it all at once. And he came back and borrowed like $1,100. And he did the same thing, paid it all back. And then uh, he didn't try to borrow anymore because finally he either, either the business was running smoothly without, without him needing any more cash or he found some, some cheaper source of financing because the guy was paying 100% uh, interest per year and making uh, making enough profit to do it to uh, meet his own criteria and to expand, and that's what this could do. That's what this this it could do that over and over again in a lot of places. That guy he could have gone to a bank. He could have uh, one one time I said he might as well go into a laundromat and shake the machines because you get more coins out of the machines that way than you would ever get out of a bank if if you're in that small town. If you're uh, probably a kid from the as we would say in America, kid born on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. I mean, there's a lot of disadvantaged minorities throughout the throughout the emerging countries, and uh, I mean, they're disadvantaged in the sense that it's not even worth their time to to knock on any of those doors. They can knock until their fingers bleed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. There are a lot of disadvantaged people throughout the world. You know, many people are unbanked. Many people are living under tyranny and they need to escape tyranny and they have no way of, you know, fleeing with their, with their assets, right? Bitcoin cryptocurrency can store in your head. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hyperinflation going on, small, small currencies being hyperinflated and people don't have a way to, to save and, and store their value in something and, you know, try to get out of poverty. So this definitely well, they could even uh, be in trouble. They, they could even be in trouble with their own authorities if they, um, if it were known that they were engaging in any economic activity that uh, was outside of the guidelines. And that could be, uh, that could be Syria right now. If I were in Syria, uh, if I were in Syria and I felt I was safe and I saw some opportunities and I had no immediate way of getting out, I might, I might try to do a little business thing, um, just to see if it would work and try to get a little, little loan in, uh, in some kind of cyber currency and run it that way and never tell anybody. Um, not even, I mean, never have a Syrian bank account, not even have a bank account in Jordan or uh, any of the other countries around there. Uh, just run the whole thing in, in cyber currency. The, the way they do in in, uh, in parts of Africa, people people who never had a bank account, instead they have a they have a telephone banking type of thing. I mean, a cell phone banking type of thing where they have some money in their account in the form of virtual reality, which they can see on their cell phone. They could also see it on a computer if they had one, but a lot of them don't even have a computer. They don't need one. Uh, it works fine uh, just on cell phones. And it completely bypasses a, a, an institution in their country, which is inefficient, excessively concentrated in the, in the capital city, totally dominated by a small group of people uh, who run it uh, primarily for their own benefit and really, really do a thoroughly bad job even of, even of misallocate. They misallocate resources and they don't even do that well. It's really kind of, kind of shocking when you see it uh, up front, uh, up, up close. Uh, it's kind of, that's, that's really what motivated me to focus more on finance because when I was first working in emerging countries, I was focusing more on uh, production in the egg sector and distribution and logistics and storage and things like that. And then I realized the reason why all these things are so inadequate is these people can't borrow any money. Hmm. The total amount of loans in the country was, was pathetic because the, the financial system could not successfully gather any, 
any savings. So the, 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 you would be reading in the literature, the savings rate is very low. No, it isn't. The savings rate is about the same as it is everywhere else. It's just that they don't save it that way. They save it in the mattress until they can turn it into a foreign currency and then send the foreign currency abroad. To send the foreign currency. I don't mean in the form of wire transfers. I mean just in the form of $10 bills. You, you go, you, if you go somewhere as a tourist and you bring a 10 or $20 bill and you spend it at some local retailer, that, uh, some, you, you, you think it went into the cash register. Went into the cash register and half an hour later, it went into somebody's, uh, back office and from there into a, into a mattress. I, I, I paid, uh, paid a restaurant bill in the Dominican Republic. It was 20 pesos and the nominal exchange rate at that time was one to one. And I paid it with a $20 bill and I just watched the waiter put the $20 bill into one pocket and pull a 20 peso note out of the other and he gave the 20 peso note to the uh, cashier. Um, and then later on that day, he sold the $20 bill for a premium. He sold it for like 24 pesos, which was the street exchange rate at that time. Hmm. So the guy at the next table who was reading and saw me reading an English newspaper and he asked me, well, how much do you tip around here? I said, well, if you paid in dollars, you already did tip the guy. Hmm. Because you, you just gave him, you just gave him a 20% tip. And he yeah. said, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, well, he, he was financially sophisticated, so he understood what had just happened. Hmm. Interesting. Well, given that uh, Bitcoin gives property rights to, you know, billions of people who aren't able to, you know, store their value in something and it, it's helping people uh, be able to do, who don't have a bank, they're able to store their, their value. Do you think that this, this technology is, would you consider it one of the biggest, biggest significant game changers in terms of human rights uh, of, of our lifetime? Or? Very well could be. Uh, that, I, 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 I thank you for that suggestion because this could be, could be a liberating force. Um, but its reputation is that somehow it's, uh, you know, sort of nefarious, sort of loose, you know, like, uh, exists only in the shadows. Yeah, it exists in the shadows because if they see what you're doing, then somebody will try to tax you or try to stop you or something. A very simple example. I have a, a friend, uh, in China who was telling me, I don't know if it's true this year, but in the previous, immediate previous year, if you're a small business person uh, and you and you had uh, success in your small business and you had some RMBs, I'm going to call them RMBs because you can't pronounce the Y-U-A-N word the way they do. But uh, you have some some of those pink hundred uh, RMB notes and you have some of those in your house and you'd rather have those in the form of bitcoins with your uh, nephew who lives in Canada, who lives in, let's say, Vancouver, um, uh, you can take $50,000 worth um, of, of uh, RMBs and convert them into uh, dollars or Canadian dollars or euros or whatever into foreign currency. And then you can send that by an ordinary wire transfer to wherever you want. But if you have more than that, any excess, you take it to a coffee shop a little at a time and you sell it for bitcoins or uh, ether or something like that. You sit there in the coffee shop until the transaction goes through and then both people leave one one uh, one leaves with your um, RMBs that you previously had in your possession, and you leave with your cell phone showing the bitcoins on your screen, and then you send those to your to your cousin in Vancouver who cashes them in for uh, the Canadian dollars and puts those because in Canada you can do that um, it's legal, and then puts those in a Canadian dollar bank account in the name of the nephew or in the name of the uncle or in the name of the in the name of the person who actually is the legal, original owner of the money. I don't know. I don't know if they, that last step, if if you could do that 
revealing who you actually are. Um, but what that would mean is that a lot of people could uh, accumulate foreign assets. Uh, people, I mean, people who are not mega wealthy, people who are not commissars, people who are not uh, heads of entire provinces or anything. And why would they do that? Well, for diversification, it's just international portfolio diversification. It's not a, not a vote against their country. It's not lack of belief in their own institutions. I'm talking China now. But in a lot of, in a lot of countries, the people really quite visibly and quite clearly have no faith at all in their, in their local institutions. And that's yeah. really kind of sad. Uh, but, but what that means is that, um, this would be a liberating, a liberating institution for people that, uh, are, are in places where their, their local institutions really are, uh, totally destroyed or were never any good in the first place, like maybe Syria. I don't know that much about Syria, but, um, uh, someplace, someplace like North Korea. I don't know if you're in North Korea, how would you even have a cell phone or a computer or how would you, uh, how, how, how would you know very much about enough about, about enough about uh, digital devices and so on to, to actually do this? But uh, I imagine somebody there might and, and then they could, uh, they could uh, actually be uh, economically and financially successful, which yeah. to, to me otherwise seems like it'd be pretty much impossible. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I see it as helping those who are most disadvantaged, and it's really cool to see all this play out. So, there I wish a lot of people are specifically for women. I don't. I my 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 reading and studying of this and trying it myself and so on. It seems to be much more um, technologically adept young men. That seems to be who's in it. Some some women, but many fewer. Maybe. Maybe 85, 15, maybe 90, 10, that kind of breakdown. Because, um, in order to mess around with this stuff, it's really pretty tricky, uh, very exacting. I, whenever I do it and whenever I do any trading and, and I always try to be alone in a quiet room, no distractions, put the phone in another room, turn off the TV, you know, just don't, just don't, <clears throat> and then make goddamn sure I don't hit the wrong key. Because as you know, if you send the, you send some bitcoins to the wrong address, they're just gone forever. And then we get it. It's back. final. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, it does have a ways to go in terms of uh, being user friendly for sure. A lot of well, the, that's why I tell the people early adopters to, are. Yeah. I tell people if, if you want to invest in Bitcoin, buy it through an ETF. Hmm. Buy it through. I, I bought one a couple of years ago and actually did pretty well with a GBTC. I think it's. G mm, grayscale. Yeah, grayscale. And many others have, have tried to get permission and some have succeeded. There's a few that are uh, uh, licensed in Europe and a few more that are probably coming out in the U.S. I, I'm really not keeping up with it. But if you buy if you buy an ETF, it's like buying an ETF that buys the Standard & Poor's 500. It's an ordinary transaction in a securities account where you have the Security Investment Protection Corporation $20 million um, insurance protection. And uh, and so if the trade somehow doesn't go through, uh, it's okay. You'll get the money back and you can try again tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I would always recommend if possible though, to hold your own, hold your own private key for sure. Oh, yeah, and there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of companies that are offering uh, Bitcoin, you know, like PayPal, Venmo, a lot of big companies. And it, it, it is uh progressing in terms of ease of use and you know you can purchase it with a click of a button so it's really exciting well, that's, to see that's something you know, the technology that, that's actually like that. becoming 
I, I think you're right, and that's really very timely. Uh, that's red hot right now because there's a great number of financial intermediaries that are offering a direct purchase of Bitcoin or Ether or half a dozen others. Um, and uh, th those companies could get hacked. I mean, there have been occasional rumors of, of hacks and, uh, and hacks that have happened, but also just uh, um, things that weren't... A hack implies that somebody actually guessed the password or somehow cracked the password, and that isn't usually what I, Normally, it's somebody leaked it or somebody just left it sitting on a, on a, on a, on a bar with their cell phone open to... Um, uh, so... Th my my concern about my concern about 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 that is a lot of the financial institutions that are offering uh, these things are not really going to be willing to repay any money that happens to get lost. Um, in, in different from a from a, a bank in the U.S., you, you you go into a bank in the U.S. and you and you make a deposit, and as you're leaving the the bank, you see the clerk going out the back door with your dollar bills in their pocket. That's okay. You have proof that the, the you made the deposit, you go in the next day, and they give you the money, they put the money into your account, they fire the clerk, send the clerk to, clerk to jail or something. But in, uh, in some of these, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do your Bitcoin trading for you. Yeah, yeah, they're going to do, do one trade. You send the Bitcoins, and they say, thank you very much. And that's that's the yeah. last time you'll ever see them. And there's nothing, nothing that uh, you can do about that legally. It's very hard to pursue these people. The rule is like this: If somebody cracks into one of my accounts and takes my takes my tokens, I have no recourse. But if I can then crack into their account and take my tokens back and all of theirs also, they can't do anything about it either. So it's really a, a it's an entirely different set of rules. And I'm just really curious as what the financial intermediaries are going to do about this. We have right now Coinbase, which is trying to be. Like a like a bank, but not like a bank. I mean, if it's a bank, it's got to be regulated like a bank. If it's not a bank, then let's uh, let's say it's not not a bank, and then say this is a whole whole different thing. Uh, so they're a whole different thing trying to trying to put enough uh, enough makeup on them, you know, putting putting some eyeshadow on and so you know, like we're really a bank. No, they're not, and and, and they 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 have a cost structure associated with. Uh, Cyber and and they don't have the cost structure associated with being a bank because they don't have that much regulation. They don't have. Uh, ask these people. Uh, can I see the most recent audit? They they say audits. We don't do that. We don't. We don't. I'm not referring to Coinbase right now, but a lot of these pretty big platforms handling billions of dollars. No audit. Yeah, yeah. I would always recommend definitely to get your Bitcoin off of exchanges and self custody it on a hardware yeah, wallet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and if you properly secure it, you know it's very secure. No one, no one can, you know, hack into it and whatnot. That's so, it. It's called a cold yeah. wallet. You get it. You get it on a on a pin drive, and you you have the private key written down in handwriting. Don't 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 photograph the piece of paper with your cell phone or anything. I mean, really, just yep. keep that 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 character string. That character string is anyone who has that can take everything that you have. So in that, in that account, anyway, the other thing is, uh, busted up into several accounts. There, there was a case that was got a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, <clears throat> a lot of press coverage just a couple of days ago, which was uh, a couple of them sa saving in bitcoins and they had saved in bitcoins, I don't know, something like $124,000. And one, one of them, uh, it was only in one Coinbase account. So the, one of them leaves a cell phone on a, a, a bar stool or something, you know, and, Somebody grabs it and, and, and steals the money. 
And then uh, Coinbase said they weren't going to pay it back. Well, they damn well ought to. But if I were the Coinbase people, I'd call them in and I'd say, look, this happened. I'm really sorry that it happened. We're going to fix your problem, but we're not going to put it back in the account where that could happen to you again. We're going to give it to you in 10 different wallets on 10 different yeah. platforms. And we're going to give you a pin drive or you know, four or five copies of the pin drive for each wallet. And we're going to tell you what to do with those. Put a, put one set in a bank vault, put another set, dig a box and put it in your backyard. And, and, and for God's sake, don't lose this shit anymore. And if you do, don't lose it all. You can't lose it all at once because we busted it into 10 pieces. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a good idea as well. Well, if they just had the whole set of pin drives sitting together in their car and somebody stole it off their front seat, well, then too bad. Once again, you know, they have to have to re yeah. replenish it once. But I think I think uh, a few cases like that, and people would realize this is this is like this is like buying gold coins and not putting them into a safe place. Yeah, you buy exactly. gold coins and you leave them in your car and leave them where anybody can see them. Then that's on you. Yeah, you have to take responsibility definitely and self custody them securely and all that for sure. So, uh, moving on, I wanted to ask you a lot of, you know, we're all faced with this decision now. Um, you know, organizations, individuals, institutions with holding fiat money, which is guaranteed to be debased over time, uh, at an increasing rate, uh, because if you look at the money supply going up, uh, uh, either that or hold your money in Bitcoin, which is guaranteed to have a, a supply cap. So do you think Bitcoin is in a way, um, threatening, uh, fiat money? And if so, do you think, uh, how, how will that play out in the future? No, I don't think so. I, I, I think Bitcoin is an, is an investable asset in the same fashion as gold ingots or gold coins. A lot of, I mean, if you, if you have 10 million euros, let's say, and you go to a Swiss bank and you say, I'd like to, I'd like to invest this very conservatively. You say, we'll take 10% of it and put it in gold. And we're going to give you a safe deposit box and the key and take 10% of it and put it in uh, Swiss treasury bills and take 10% of it and put it in U.S. treasury bills and take 10% of it and put it in German treasury bills and take 10% of it and put it in blue chip stocks. And, and then you finally get to the point where you have 10% where you could put it in something riskier. So in that sense, Bitcoin would would be in there in the same in the same uh, position as, as gold. Get a little bit of Bitcoin, sure, maybe one or two, four or five percent at the most of your of your portfolio, and then uh, uh, also maybe some gold. I mean, I, I I myself do not do not have any gold, but uh, I understand the appeal of it, um, and it's a, it's an argument of pure scarcity, and it's easy to recognize and difficult to fake. Bitcoin, uh, you, can, you really can't make any more of them. And, uh, and so if you have it in a secure form, as we, as we were just talking about, pre keeping, keeping it in a, in a cold wallet type of setup, um, it's sort of like having, sort of like having, uh, gold ingots or gold coins. And it would, it would go up, uh, over time relative to fiat money in the same fashion as gold does, uh, with an uptrend, but violent fluctuations. And if you take gold, it was almost at $2,000 an ounce in 2010, went back all the way down to like well, 1000 an ounce. Now it's knocking on the door of $2,000 an ounce again. And I can confidently tell you that sometime in the next hundred years, it'll trade at $10,000. But in the meanwhile, you, you're, you, could have, you could have made some return on fiat money. And you might end up with, uh, starting with, starting with the uh, same amount of, of purchasing power today, you could end up with even more if you were investing in fiat money. So, 
I would say fiat is fiat in the long run. Fiat will be devalued, but it will not necessarily be devalued very quickly. And right now, there's just a lot of a lot of talk about how the massive creation of money. Well, actually, it isn't really. I mean, if you look at the actual money supply of dollar bills in circulation, it hasn't really gone up that much. What's what's gone up is is uh, financial assets that people don't spend. So uh, we we could say. Where would you get inflation? Get inflation from people spending money. They would spend it with credit cards. Uh, but all that does is that just uh, produces a transaction that gets gets zeroed out, um, offset in a kind of clearinghouse mechanism in the same fashion as the traders used to do in in Europe in the in the Middle Ages. So the the uh, the supply of underlying uh, underlying fiat, fiat money. Isn't really going up at such a such a rapid rate. It's it's customary to hear, oh yeah, we're borrowing ourselves into into poverty. Another thing that really makes me laugh is when a politician says, I don't want to borrow any more money from China. Well, don't worry, they're not lending it. If you look at China's holdings of foreign exchange, their holdings of dollars peaked a long time ago. They started spending some of those dollars to buy imports to give their middle class some some goods um, that they were not getting otherwise. You know, like New Zealand butter is really pretty good stuff. Uh, it wasn't routinely available in the supermarkets in China until they started bringing it in. Uh, but they had to buy it. So they take some of their dollar reserves, buy New Zealand currency, and then buy the butter with that, or just buy the butter directly with U.S. dollars. Um, and then they didn't have the, they didn't have that huge stash of foreign, ex- uh, foreign exchange reserves that at one point was over four trillion U.S. dollars equivalent. Not, not all U.S. dollars. A lot of it was in other stuff, but a good, a good large amount of it was in U.S. dollars. So if you look at uh, all these issuances of treasury bonds that are being issued now, they're being bought by all sorts of buyers all around the world. So it's not a geo, it's not a geopolitics situation. It's a lot of people just saying, I want some dollars in the same fashion that I want some gold. I want some Bitcoin. I want some euros. I want some, uh, I want some Swiss francs. And, uh, and what, what I don't want is I don't want impressionist paintings because those are too hard to handle. And, to, they have to be validated, and you have to keep it in a hum, humidity-controlled environment, and so on. So, want to get want to get a virtual currency that is designed the way Bitcoin is, and you could actually have some of that. Hmm. Yeah, the the M two money supply, according to the Federal Reserve, has increased uh, approximately thirty five percent in the last year. Yeah. Um, which is that's a lot, right? Would you consider that? Oh yeah, uh, certainly, be... yeah, absolutely. M M two, but M M two is uh, what what people often talk about is more like M one, you know, coin and currency and circulation. That that's definitely gone up. But another reason why that's gone up is a lot of people are sitting with cash in their pocket. So when we look at the money supply, we have to look at velocity of circulation. I I went to an ATM in July of last year. <laughs> I got. I got some $20 bills. Uh, some of them I still have because I'm kind of, uh, uh, stuck in, in a, in a small, uh, small cottage in Northern New Hampshire a lot of the time. And, and I really, uh, don't find that many opportunities to spend $20 bills. So if you look at the circulation of the paper money, it's way down. Another thing is there's a precautionary demand for cash. A lot of people really would feel better if they had like, you know, 500 bucks in their refrigerator or wherever they put it. Uh, and so you have uh, these precautionary balances, which are probably uh, well above their their normal. And what uh, what the what the Fed chairman has said consistently is, if they see uh, any indication that the velocity of circulation is going back up in the normal direction, 
they would start retiring some of the paper money. And the way they do that is they just, uh, they sell, sell, uh, bonds from their portfolio to commercial banks and demand payment in cash. They take the, they, they, they take the, the, the paper money in the back room and shred it. In fact, if you go to the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston for a visit, uh, on your way out, I, I've, I've seen this. Um, they give you a little bag of shredded, shredded uh, dollar bills. And if you want to really waste a complete afternoon, you can spread those shreds out on your table and see if you can assemble one dollar bill from them. And probably you can't, but it's uh, kind of, if you like puzzles, I guess maybe that would be fun. But uh, they don't... Uh, they don't have to worry too much about that shredded money coming back into circulation. So it's it's partly how much is there and how much is circulating and who has it and who's spending it. Hmm. Do you think uh, more more companies and institutions are going to put Bitcoin on their uh, on their uh, balance sheet moving forward? Uh, a lot of these p- companies that have a lot of fiat money just sitting there and losing value over time. Uh, do you see the more of that converting into Bitcoin? I, I suppose they could, but they'd have to be very careful how they do it because the, the way the way Elon Musk did it, it looked it looked uh, a- after the fact. I'm not accusing him of manipulating uh, the price of any cyber currency, but um, announcing that Tesla was going to have this big stash of Bitcoins and then Dogecoin and whatever else. You know, I mean, um, when that guy talks, a lot of people are listening, so he really should be much more aware of that. And uh, so you saw the the market gyrating because of because of uh, uh, what are really just kind of side remarks of this one guy, and that's not good. So um, if a if a company like Apple said, well, we think that uh, it's prudent to have a small amount of, of bitcoins, and we're going to buy you know a uh, billion dollars worth of bitcoins uh, every month in the same fashion as uh, you know like they would they would buy. Um, I don't know, shares of other companies, if they if they thought that would be a good thing to buy, they could accumulate some that way, and they, they would not royal the market. I, I, I do I do worry about them uh, uh, doing this uh, market turbulence thing, which uh, these things are already turbulent enough. I mean, one of the one of the tokens that I'm that I'm that I'm following, I won't say its name, but it it fl- it went down twenty percent uh, two days ago and up forty percent today, and that's just normal. Now, if yeah. if you're if you have a significant portion of your personal life savings in that stuff, that would give you gray hair long before your time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, to go back to uh, fiat money versus Bitcoin, really quick. So, uh, you know, a good money is able to transfer value through time and space effectively, be able to store its value over time, and also be able to transfer value through space, right? So given that Bitcoin does these things superior to fiat money, it is able to go peer-to-peer directly without any institution in between, and it's able to hold its value over time without anybody creating anything new. Do you think that that poses a threat to fiat money in any way? or Eventually it might, but not, not in the near... I mean, if you look at the relative magnitude, the total size of the, of the cyber currency market is like $2 trillion. And the world financial assets are, uh, I don't know, 500 trillion, something like that. So it would have to, yep. it would have to uh, double and double again before it would even be at, at the 1% level. Of, so it gets a whole bunch more press coverage. But, uh, but I, I think, I think you're right that, that many parts of the Bitcoin design uh, really just uh, leave old institutions totally behind. The, the so-called trustless 
uh, transfer process with confirmations being absolutely trustworthy, although you don't even know who the counterparty is and there's no trusted intermediary in the middle, that's just absolutely brilliant. Um, and, and also, uh, stateless. I, I, I can be, I can be in, uh, I don't know, Mauritius in the Indian Ocean and I can send you money and you would have it, uh, in less than an hour. You try that, you go into a conventional bank and prepare to lose the morning. I had to do that in Naples. Lovely city, by the way, if you get a chance to go there. But, uh, I, I, for technical reasons, I, my, my, my ATM card wasn't working. So I had to go into a bank and I had to put out my passport and a different credit card and I got 500 euros. It took me like four hours and I, I can't really, I can speak Spanish pretty much perfectly. And I was just uh, stumbling along in Italian, which I can hardly speak at all. But it was, that wasn't the problem. It's just they couldn't move any faster than that. And I'm sitting there thinking all these retailers around here are wishing that, that I would come in and buy something at their shop. Uh, they would perfectly well have taken my credit card, but I had to sit there and lose literally four hours. And I must have talked to half a dozen people and I finally ended up sitting in the office. Somebody who were in one of these glassed in offices were, and I said, what is this? I mean, this is just so totally, so totally antediluvian. You know, that's not, that's not, that's pre-modern. That's like, and that was, uh, recent times. That was not so very long ago that, that that happened. So if, if I, if I wanted to make a transfer in bitcoins, if there had been a bitcoin ATM that would put out euros, uh, I could have sent some bitcoins or Ethereum or something from one of my, uh, wallets to the machine and then I could just cash out, uh, you know, I could get a couple hundred euros and then the next day get a couple hundred more. I got 500 all at once because I didn't want to have to do it twice. Yeah. And it was only going to be there a week. And I, well, I'm already am losing half of a perfectly good day when I could have been in museums or I could have been, uh, I don't know, eating really lovely food or something. Instead, I'm sitting there and the bank, by the way, was not air conditioned and it was July. So an uh, entirely unpleasant morning. And in that sense, yes, uh, this uh, cyber currency will be... Um, preferred by many people over time, but the transition would be extremely slow. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it if I were in the conventional system of finance, if I were uh, expecting to have a career. That, yeah, the career will still be there. Um, uh, that'll take a very long time before cyber currency would replace existing financial intermediaries to any substantial degree, except for people that have no access to the conventional financial intermediaries. Because because of what I look like and because of my background, I can go into any financial institution uh, in the world and I can get something that maybe uh, other people couldn't get. I was in South Korea and I had to go into a bank to get some Korean currency. Same reason that I hit too many digits on my ATM card and I froze the goddamn thing. And I was going to be there for a few more days, so I had to go into a bank. And they kept sending me higher and higher until I found somebody that could do the transaction in English because I can't speak Korean. And so I walked out with several hundred dollars worth of Korean won, which is a pretty thick wad of paper. But why did I have to do that? If if yeah. there were some much more effortless and elegant way of doing it, which there now is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's super exciting. There's a there's a new way for sure. So you know, moving forward, um, well, to end this out, how, how do you think we can help get the word out about Bitcoin and what it offers to humanity and how can we support the network and, and what are you doing to, to support that? Well, I think you're, you're doing it, you're doing with this, uh, this series of, of, of shows and your YouTube channel. Uh, I'm writing the, the book that I'm writing right now is on decentralized finance. I'm writing it in Spanish because uh, I have, I have access to 
uh, that market is people will read things that I write in Spanish. If I write something in English, uh, some people read it, but if I write something in Spanish, 60 or 80,000 people will read it in the first week. So I can write I can write something describing what decentralized finance is and what it would do for them and uh, get some airplay for that and then uh, turn it into an ebook and uh, a bunch of uh, uh, audio audio clips and do some seminars and spread the word in that way and find some workshops and places where people who really kind of thought they could never do anything involving money convince them, no, that's what your uncle told you when you were 10 years old, but your uncle was, was right at that time, but not right anymore. Now you can do this. Yeah. So that, that, that's well, what I'm hoping to be able to do. That's awesome. But you're doing, you're doing yeah. more right now, so uh, you're ahead of me already. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is my this is my way of contributing, trying to get get more voices uh, to be heard about Bitcoin, and so we can have an open conversation and all that. For well, sure, you're, so. you're you're informed, and, and you're you're not you're not coming coming at the whole subject from the view that somehow this is threatening and bad, and this is this is helping bad guys be, become worse guys. No, it does. Yes, but I mean, it can be used for illegal purposes. It can be used for uh, financing uh, transactions involving. Uh, illegal substances or uh, things that, that that we really don't want to have on this planet. Um, the, the famous uh, website Silk Road, which was uh, um, head, headed by a libertarian who uh, pay, paid for uh, paid for his relief, paid for a pardon at the end of the uh, government that just just left. Um, uh, that was a market where you could buy heroin and and, yep. and fentanyl and stuff like that and uh, I, I certainly am not in favor of that so uh, but but um, that's that was one of the original big uses of Bitcoin to buy a bunch of stuff that I mean they even had human body parts for sale on that thing I never saw it but yeah. there's, a, there's a, a book about it that I that I got yeah yeah it's very interesting to look at the the, the origination of all of this for sure so all right well where, where can every anybody uh find more about you online and and read uh find your books and all that well thank you i have a, i have a website johncedmonds.com uh it's also quite easy to find me just uh, with john c edmonds uh, i have a babson website which has kind of standard academic uh, stuff on it uh, johncedmonds.com has a lot of uh clips of uh, interviews that I gave or short pieces that I wrote and also has links to probably uh, three quarters of my books. Uh, some of the others have come out so recently that I haven't even got a link up there yet, but uh, definitely that's in progress. Um, and uh, I'd love to, uh, love to hear from people on this subject. I just uh, really find it so tremendously interesting and with so much potential, but you really opened my eyes on uh, the empowerment side of this uh, from a point of view of uh, gender, I mean, the egalitarian uh, opportunities for women, because in decentralized finance, they really don't care who you are, they don't care what you look like, they just want to know, can you borrow money and make good use of it and pay it back on schedule, according to the terms of an agreement. And yeah. so you could be from a disadvantaged group, uh, you could be from a... a uh, you, you could be people that are normally marginalized or dismissed, and and uh, and decentralized finance would uh, would open its uh, open its door virtual doors to you. There's no physical doors, no no office, no uh, maybe a nameplate somewhere on a lawyer's office, maybe in the Marshall Islands, and that's about it. Yeah, no leaders. I, I love it. It's open, permissionless, 
anyone can join. That's definitely the beauty of it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming on today, John. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, great show, and you're, you're, you're a great advocate for this, and please keep it up, and please invite me again. I will. Will do.